0: You're listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We are going to be looking at verses 6 through 13 today, and and, uh, this is a a difficult uh, passage of Scripture. This week and, and next week are are two very challenging uh, maybe the most difficult uh, sections in Romans there are uh, some interpretive uh, challenges to them but but the main difficulty i think is is accepting and believing uh, what we are what we are hearing from paul and uh, so we should uh, pray and we will in just a moment for the lord's help The section here in Romans teaches on the doctrine of election. That is, that God chooses or elects people to salvation. Our Baptist Faith and Message, 2000, uh, defines election like this. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable, and it excludes boasting and promotes humility. And uh, perhaps a more simplistic definition might be that those who freely come to God are those whom God has freely chosen. And so this doctrine is at the heart of what Paul is teaching here. We'll see it as we read Romans 9 together, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we recognize our need uh, to come before you, the need that we have for our hearts and minds to be illumined by your Holy Spirit, to understand spiritual truth taught in your word. And so we humbly ask for it today, Lord, as we look at these words. And we pray as well that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are, are ready to receive what you would have to say to us, Lord. I pray that you would use me as your servant, Lord. I My prayer is that you would increase and I would decrease, and that your word would go forth. And I prayed in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week we introduced um, this section of Romans and and the questions that Paul is seeking to answer here. If the gospel is for the Jew first, Romans 1.16, If the gospel if the gospel is for the Jew first, and then uh, for the Greek or Gentile, why are so many of the Jews rejecting it? And how is it that, that the Israelites, who were the recipients of the great promises of God in the Old Testament, how, how is it that, by and large, they're rejecting the gospel, and so many of the Gentiles are believing it and are, are now a part of the promises of God? And, and we mentioned last week that behind those questions, there's an even bigger question that is there if, if God promised Israel in the Old Testament that they would be his people and yet the majority of them are not uh, believing in Christ does that mean that God's uh, that God's word of promise has failed that, that what he said in the Old Testament just it didn't have any power uh, in it to, to fulfill and so i think the purpose of these chapters in chapters 9 10 and 11 or the theme is is really a defense of the gospel or you might even say a defense of god it's a justification of the ways of god and how he works out his amazing and glorious purposes in our lives as both jews and and gentiles we also talked last week about how these issues were not merely theoretical or intellectual uh, for Paul. This isn't a dry uh, classroom, ivory tower kind of of theology, but, but one that affected Paul down to his core. And if you look at verses 1 through 5 again, you see there a man, Paul, who was burdened, who was broken hearted for his kinsmen, the Israelites, who uh, were rejecting the gospel. And we also talked about the end of the section in Romans chapter 11. And we're, we're having looked at all of these things. Paul ends this section with this incredible doxology, there, verses 33 through 36, in which he worships God. Having gone through all these things that we're going to be talking about, he ends with worship of God for his unsearchable and inscrutable ways. And uh, he ends there, verse chapter 11, verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And, and those three prepositions there are really important. All of these gospel truths and ways of God are from Him, from God. And all of the ways in which these glorious truths are worked out and are worked out in our lives are through Him, they're for Him, and they're through Him, through Christ and not us. And then thirdly, all of these things are to Him. That is, He he gets all of the praise and glory for them. And so it's so important that we keep this frame In our minds, as we study this, it's possible to believe the first two prepositions, that the gospel is from him and it is through him, but then finish the statement and say that it's actually to me, when it's not about me, it's about God. And, and, and Paul says it's to him, it's, it's about him. That is not to say that there's implications for us in these things, and there are, but ultimately it is about him. It is for him and through him and to him. And at the end of the day, these things that we are studying should lead us to, uh, uh, to be on our knees with Paul, with him, praising God for the great salvation that we have, though we cannot even understand all of it, but we're praising God for it, and we are pleading with God for the lost. That they would come into this salvation, and so these bookends help us to frame what we're talking about. It's out of this brokenness that Paul is addressing the question here first and foremost: What about the Jews, God's chosen people in the Old Testament? Why are so many of them rejecting the gospel? That's his theme. That's what he's he's beginning here. And the first possibility that Paul wants to address: the first challenge is: Has God's word of promise in the Old Testament has it failed? And and the question comes so quickly that Paul doesn't even frame it in a a question. I think he begins to answer it before he even puts it in a question. And it's the first of our our three headings this morning. We might call it a strong refutation. Verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Well, why are so many Jews who have all these incredible privileges and promises of God and the the patriarchs, verses 4 and 5, all those listing of things there, why are these folks who had been blessed with all of these things, why are so many of them rejecting the gospel? And Paul's immediate response and something that he wants to roll out right from the beginning is that it is not because God's promises have failed. It is not because His Word has failed. Isaiah 55 has come to my mind several times this week in the study, and particularly regarding this passage. Uh, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, uh, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's a great reminder as we're looking at, These topics at hand but the next couple of verses are particularly important as well Isaiah 55 verse 10 for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing. Succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I remind myself of those words often. That God's word does not return void. It goes out, though sometimes I can't see the results of the word preached, being preached. In the congregation, it is like seeds planted in the ground, he says. It's like water that goes in the ground, and maybe for a time being you don't see anything. But God's promises, His purposes to use, He he promises to use His Word to accomplish that which He wills. That is what Paul is saying here. God's Word has not failed. It has not failed because it cannot fail. And, And he's saying that if people fail... God doesn't when He promises in His Word, He always, what He promises, He always fulfilled. That has direct application to us. You might think, this has nothing to do with me, this is about Jews. Oh, it has a lot to do with us because we've just studied Romans chapter 8 where God has made tremendous promises to us and one in which we're continuing to sing about today that there's no separation from His love for those in Christ. But if God hasn't and is not able to keep His promises to Israelites in the Old Testament, how can we be sure that He's going to keep His promises to us? especially in times when it doesn't seem like it or feel like it in our lives because of the difficulty of circumstances. And that's the case here in Romans 9. And so you could say, okay, God's word has not failed. It's one thing for you to say that, Paul, uh, but it sure doesn't look that way because that's not what's happening. Why aren't the, the Jews coming in to believe the gospel? And as you say, this power of the gospel that saves Paul says, well, if one thing's for sure, it's not because God's word has failed. But he quickly adds a theological explanation to it. That's our second point today. He quickly adds a theological explanation. No, God's word has not failed. Okay, well, how do we explain all of these Jews who are rejecting the gospel? Here's what he says, the second part of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That's a pretty significant uh, clarification and statement that he makes, isn't it? The promises given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, Paul says, you know, I, I want you to know that those promises were not automatically given to everybody who was physically descended from Abraham. Not, not everybody. You, you may remember, Paul has already told us this. He started to introduce this to us all the way back in Romans chapter 2. Um, back in verses 28 and 29 there, he said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. He's already set himself up for this, uh, for this truth that not all who have the circumcision have been changed. Uh, Not all who are naturally or ethnically, nationally Jews are spiritually Jews. Not all of Israel belongs to Israel. It's one thing to. Uh, belong to the nation. It's one thing to be circumcised. It's one thing to have all of those privileges, again, mentioned in verses 4 and 5 that he's talked about, but it's an altogether different thing to have experienced the power of gospel and the salvation for those who believe. Not all Israel, that is the nation of Israel, belong to Israel, that is the people of God. There's a difference. And again, you say, well, did Paul just kind of pull that out of the hat? No, not at all, because... We've seen this, and we've seen this in multiple places. You, you may remember the New Testament, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, and he, be, he was preaching to the Jews, preparing them for his coming. He told them in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, he said, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. He's saying, don't, don't fall back on your Jewish heritage here. And the fact that you, you're you, you claiming Abraham as, as your father, that's not going to save you. More significantly was Jesus in the gospel of John, chapter 8, preaching the gospel to the Jews. And, and you remember they responded to him the same way. John 8, 39 uh, is the text. They answered him. They said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus told them, you you may claim to have Abraham as your father, and you may have all the right genes, and you may have all this, uh, able to trace your family line right back to Abraham, but unless you believe in me, you are not a child of God. This is incredibly important to us and helpful to us as we... As we try to understand the Old Testament, why were uh, so many rejecting God then? And you think about a whole generation that didn't make it into the promised land. Only a faithful remnant. Not all Israel is of Israel. Only a faithful remnant were the true people of God. That helps us to understand what's going on in the Gospels with all of the Pharisees and the Sadducees opposing Christ. But listen, it helps us to understand even the doctrine of salvation for our own lives. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We could could step down the ladder of application and we we could remind ourselves that not all people who claim to be Christians are Christians. Not all people in the church belong to the people of God. Salvation is not automatically granted to you because you had a Christian uh, mom or dad. It's not automatically granted to you because uh, you were raised in church or you were baptized as a baby or any of those things or because you're a member of the church. How are we a part? How do we become a part of the, the true people of Abraham? How, 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 does, how does someone come into the, the people of God? How, how does anyone become a, a child of the promise, as he's talking about here, a part of the people of God? And this is the point where we, we need to lean in. We need to listen very carefully to what Paul is saying. The third part here, and it's the majority of our verses, he gives a scriptural foundation for the things that he's saying. He gives us a couple of illustrations to help us to understand and answer. How does anyone become a part of the children of the promise? his offspring, his physical offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's a quote there from Genesis 21-12. This means, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring there's one reason we've been studying the life of abraham uh, this past year on wednesday nights and so i would give you another shameless commercial to come out and join us in our study those of you who are come i hope that you are encouraged by the word would you say amen i pray it's not just four of you but there's there's quite a few that come and uh, i would invite you to come but we've been studying these things and intentionally in part because of all of the parallels that are here. But God made incredible promises to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And he was promising to create a people for himself, a nation for him, a people for himself, to bless them and that through them to be a blessing to all of the nations. And you may remember in that story, maybe from your Sunday school class or Wednesday nights, if you can remember the sermons, um, but that Abraham had two sons. He had Isaac and Ishmael, didn't they? But God told Abraham in Genesis 21, that quote is from God to him, that only one of his sons would receive the promises. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The word named there is, I think, better translated as the King James Version has it, called through Isaac shall your offspring be called only through Isaac, called of God. called of God, named of, by God. And it tells us that this is how a person comes into God's family. God calls them to come into His family. He calls them. He names them. This is, um, by the way, it's the same word that Paul used back in chapter four verse 17 speaking of Abraham and Sarah by the way and and how they conceived Isaac he speaks of God there who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist so shall your offspring be God tells Abraham the child of the promise and And the future children of the promise, those who would come after Isaac as a part of the people of God, they would come into existence by the call of God. A work of God and a work of God alone. Notice the quote from Genesis 18. Paul cites in verse 9 he says for this is what the promise said about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son so this couple as you remember they were in their 90s Uh, Sarah was barren they're both I would say past the age of childbearing by any uh, normal natural standards and yet God supernaturally by the promise of God they had Isaac And so we understand then all the way back in Genesis 21 that God says there was a distinction that was being made. Not all Israel was Israel. Not all who would be descended from Abraham would be included in the promise. That's Paul's point. Ishmael was descended, a physical descendant from Abraham, and yet not a spiritual descendant. Ishmael was not called by God. Isaac was called the child of promise, according to the Lord. God kept his promise to Abraham and Sarah. How does anyone become a child of the promise? First, by God's calling, by his calling. Now, someone could say, well, this is easy. This isn't hard. Paul's argument here, uh, it's not that complicated. Ishmael was not the child of the promise because, well, you didn't tell the whole story, Pastor and Paul. You didn't tell the whole story. He was born to Sarah's servant, Hagar. You remember that? In a moment of, of, of weakness and maybe frustration that uh, God wasn't moving fast enough to provide a son to, to make good on the promise Sarah gives Hagar you can read about it in Genesis there Sarah gives Hagar her Egyptian maid servant to Abraham and he had a son through her therefore Ishmael was an Ill, uh, you could argue, well, Ishmael, that's clear. It's clear why he's not in the promise. He's an illegitimate son. God, God must have saw something in him and chose Isaac instead. But Paul's second illustration from Scripture doesn't leave room for that possibility. What we see here that salvation is grounded not just in God's promise, but it's grounded in God's choice, His choice, His election. Verse 10, he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul says, now, it wasn't just Ishmael and Isaac that this distinction took place, but Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. Maybe you've heard of those characters. We're in the midst of studying them right now uh, on Wednesday nights. Did I mention we have a service on Wednesday nights, 6 p.m., and uh, I'd invite you to come? Uh, but Isaac's sons, he says, Jacob and Esau, we see God's. Sovereign call and choosing. And right away we see differences. He points the differences for us. So unlike Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau had both the same father and mother. So it's not one of those, you know, switcheroo kind of things that they did the first time. No, they've got the same parents, same physical parents, descendants. They were also, interestingly, they were also twins. They were in the room together. And then to press the point home, it's made clear that before either of them had done anything, whether good or bad, God chose Jacob for the promise. Why do some of Abraham's descendants, the Jews, love God and are a part of true Israel? And why are others rejecting the gospel? How is anyone a part of the promise? How does someone become a part of the promise? Well, we're not given every reason in this illustration that Paul gives, but one thing we know is that it has nothing to do with these, these boys. I mean, it has nothing to do with qualities that they, they, would, they would have or the decisions that they would make. It wasn't, notice it says, it wasn't based on uh, uh, of anything bad that they would do, bad that God would see them do in their life. Even more astonishing, though, is his choice wasn't based on anything good that either one of them would do. He specifies it, bad or good. Or even, we might even add some foreseen faith that God might see in them. Nothing good, nothing bad that he would see. All we're told is that this choice is, here's the explanation that we're given in verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works he says it again but because of him who what's the word calls calls now notice three things there first of all this choice was clearly god's and his alone right his, it says that his purpose of election might continue now now we should note there that god's election or choosing We might be imagining some terrible things here, but God's election or choosing was not arbitrary, and it's not random or forced, but it's based on His sovereign and gracious purpose, His purpose of election, to bring a people to Himself. That's what we're told secondly it was a free choice he says he he, again he adds not because of works again it's not based on their family or their morality or some future faith or future good works that they would do we i I, my mind went immediately uh, to ephesians 2 it is it is by grace that we're saved through faith not by not by works that's the phrase that he uses not because of works And then thirdly, this choice, again, notice it was put into effect by God's sovereign and life-giving call. It's that last phrase. Here's here's the, the element, but because of him who calls. Because of his call. And to drive home his point, he cites one last scripture from Malachi, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved But Esau I hated. That is a hard and difficult verse. And I think, honestly, in reading about this week, I could probably preach several sermons from that verse alone. But I don't want you to miss the razor-sharp edge of what Paul is saying. Both Jacob and Esau were sinful men. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. we've been seeing that in our study of them. And yet God chose to bless one of them with his saving love, with the promise, and not the other. And again, Paul does not say that God did this arbitrarily or that he has no reasons behind his choice. But what he is saying clearly is that these reasons, that the reason he does this is not found in Jacob or Esau. It's found in God. He has his reasons in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That's all we're told. And that's what makes this so challenging, isn't it? this is this passage here this passage and next week are the reasons why a lot of pastors will not preach through romans because they don't want to get to this part and i, and I admit to you it's difficult i, I came across the statement this week in, in my reading my study and and it said this it, as a pastor it's my duty to believe and to teach what the bible teaches and not what i would like for it to teach and, and, and I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, but, but I want to admit to you, there's some things I don't really like. You know, and, and I want to say, well, Paul here, Paul, are you sure about this? I mean, can't you find some reasons here, some little more explanation as to why you would make these statements and, and why, can't you find some reason that God chose Jacob rather than Esau. And we could do a lot of study and talk about their lives, and we could probably, in afterthoughts, pick these kinds of things. But surely, we'd say, there must be something in Jacob that that caused God to to choose him over Esau. And then then personally, I stop and I, I ask myself, and maybe you should do this too, is there something in me that caused you to love me? Surely, surely it's because you could look ahead in the future and see that I attend church. Surely it's because you, you look ahead and see that I, I've, I've fallen in love with your word, and I've wanted to learn it, and I've tried to memorize it ever since I was a boy. Surely you could see ahead. Surely you, maybe you could look ahead and see that I, I love you, and I wanted to serve you with my life. Or maybe you'd look ahead and see that I would make a decision to follow you at some point. But you understand, at that moment, at that moment, the moment that we say those things is the moment that we start discounting God's grace. the moment that we say and i'm trying to figure this that my salvation is by grace but also by my qualifications then in saying that i'm effectively denying the grace of god the fact that by the very definition of grace that it is something that is undeserved and unmerited if the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is ultimately in us, then we become the authors of our own salvation. If I could put it to you like this, if I were to ask you uh, this morning, and uh, why did you receive Christ and others haven't? That's what Paul is addressing here, right? Why are some saved some not? Um, why did you receive Christ and others haven't? And we were to start that conversation, and you might say something like, well, you know, it's because I've, I confess my sins. And I would say, okay, okay, that's, that's good. Why did you confess your sins? And you say, well, well it, you know, it, and others haven't. Why have you done it and others haven't? We well, said, say, well, well, it's because I humbled myself. Okay, but, but why did you humble yourself and other people haven't? Uh, well, it's because I'm more open than other people. Okay, well, why are you more open? To it than other people are. Well, it's because I believed. Okay, but why haven't other people believed? And and you see, we could go through this all afternoon, and when we get right down to having answered every single one of these possible questions and things, we get to the bottom, and the bottom is here. You are not a Christian because you are better than others. We are not Christians because we were somehow smarter than everyone else. We are not Christians because we are more humble than others or because we are more open or even because we had faith. You're a Christian because of the sovereign grace of God. That saved you. You see that, and everything in Paul's letter has been to demonstrate this, hasn't it? I mean, think about the whole journey, and I won't repeat it again. But, but, but he's saying it over and over. There's nothing in us that qualifies this for grace. Our salvation is rooted in the sovereign love and choosing of God. There's only one cause of God's. Electing grace, and it's God Himself. That's where it all started. Now, now I know that we're very tempted at this point to, to begin to ask all kinds of questions. Um, that if this is true, uh, that, that it is only by God's loving choice that I am. I am saved today, that I am a Christian. And I know one of the immediate things that will come up is that this is somehow unfair. This is unfair. Paul cannot mean this. He cannot mean this because this would make God unfair. But I would encourage you not to say that. Because that very question proves that this is what Paul is teaching here. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because in the very next verse, in verse 14, that is the very objection that Paul is going to answer. I, I know that this raises a lot more questions, and I would encourage you to keep coming. That I mentioned we have a Wednesday night service at 6? And um, we'll be back next Sunday. And there's more verses here to talk about, including human responsibility and faith and repentance. Paul's going to be talking about these things. But I want to encourage you this morning to set those things aside, those questions and even those quandaries aside that are in your mind. And, and, to, and to face what I think is the real issue that needs to be dealt with and what Paul is addressing here, and, and that is simply this. Do I attribute all of my salvation to God? All of it. Because if I'm attributing his love for me to, to just one ounce of something else, well, it's... It's all his grace but you know it was my humility. Or it's all his grace but you know it it was that that prayer that I prayed. Or it's all his his grace but it is you know it's a little bit of my good works. And it's no longer grace that we're saved. And that's a shaky place to be church. Paul is helping us to see here what it means to be a child of the promise and what it means to be a Christian. And here's his message. It is all of God, all of grace, and all of Jesus Christ. It is from Him and through Him and to Him from the very beginning to the very end so that he will get all of the glory forever and ever. Romans eleven thirty six. 36. This does several things to us. Um, for one, this humbles us deeply, doesn't it? It does me. It humbles us deeply. It really does strangle my pride, any pride that I might have in myself. It, it chokes out any self-sufficiency that that might be in me, and it certainly kills any self-righteousness that I would try to bring to the table with God. But it also does something else. It gives me this unshakable foundation for my salvation. Unshakable. An unshakable promise that nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus Christ because... Such love had nothing to do with me. It's rooted in the saving, loving, gracious purposes of God that I, don't, I can't even begin to understand. And that should humble us, church. It should bring us back to our knees with Paul. Just as he begins in chapter 9, broken and pleading, for our loved ones who need to come into this salvation. Amen. And it leaves us on our knees, humbled and praising God. It's all from him. Only God can save, and only God, by his gracious choice, has saved us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for that. Maybe you're here today, you're listening to this, and you're not a Christian, and this is kind of like, whoa, Um, and you're wondering to yourself, you know, am, am I among God's elect? Please hear this. This teaching is for those who already believe. This teaching today is to assure God's people of his love, regardless of their failures and circumstances and doubts and any of those things. It is meant to be peace to believers that they would direct their praise and worship God. And so I want to encourage you if you don't know Christ, don't worry about this right now. What you need in this moment is simply what the Bible calls you to do, which is to respond in faith. And The fact is that Paul will say in the very next chapter, chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, finish it, church. And you believe that, amen? And and that's the response. Later on, God will confirm in your heart the wonder of all wonders that he loved you before you loved him. But right now you just need to turn from yourself and you need to turn from your sin and you need to put your faith in Jesus alone for salvation. And I want to invite you to do that right now. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, these are such hard words and we ask your help to understand and to receive and to believe. I know that there are many questions left to answer. Some we can answer. Some we don't know that are in your purposes and minds. But I pray that you would help us to continue to seek you and seek you from your word and to give you glory for it's all from you and through you and to you. We pray today, Lord, that for those who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, that upon hearing this good news today, Lord, you would open their eyes to see these glorious truths of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, that they might today turn from themselves as their Savior and turn from their sin, which has been separating them, and to look to Christ, whose perfect life and sacrificial death and resurrection has saved us. And so, Lord, we pray for them today, that you might save them We thank you for this gospel, and as we close our service and this time of response, but also worship, we thank you that as we think about these things and how simply they've been put for us in song, that that though our sins are, are so great, that your mercy is more. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.